From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, April 23rd. I'm Marco Werman. President Obama unveils new tools designed to help prevent atrocities around the globe. One goal is accountability at the highest levels. It prevents the U.S. government from saying, oh, we didn't know, oh, we didn't notice. And later, German law doesn't require bicycle riders to wear helmets for fear of sending the wrong signal. It's completely a catastrophe if we send out a signal, do not ride your bicycle. Plus, gearing up for a second round of voting in France. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by WGBH, presenting Frontlines, Money, Power, and Wall Street, the origins of the financial crisis, and the drama on Wall Street and in Washington to contain the meltdown and save the economy. Tomorrow night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. President Obama today tackled a question that's always near the top of any president's foreign policy agenda, and that is how to prevent atrocities around the globe. Too often the world has failed to prevent the killing of innocents on a massive scale, and we are haunted by the atrocities that we did not stop and the lies we did not save. Obama was speaking this morning at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, but his speech went beyond references to the Holocaust or to the 1994 Rwanda genocide. It touched on current challenges, like stopping the violence in Syria and Sudan. And the president made the case for making sure that addressing such challenges is a top U.S. priority. Preventing mass atrocities and genocide is a core national security interest and a core moral responsibility of the United States of America. That, Obama stressed, doesn't mean military intervention every time. He said the U.S. also has many diplomatic and political tools to tackle the problem. And the president added one more tool today. He announced the first meeting of his Atrocities Prevention Board at the White House. Harvard professor Sarah Sewell founded the Mass Atrocity Response Operations Project. She's currently on a research appointment with the Naval War College. She says the new Atrocities Prevention Board is particularly significant in one respect. It institutionalizes ownership and responsibility at a relatively high level, at the assistant secretary level, almost guaranteeing that high-level attention will be brought to bear when situations begin to smell troubling. And that's a very important development because it prevents the U.S. government from saying, oh, we didn't know, oh, we didn't notice. Mm. It really forces a level of accountability that's fundamentally different. Lower down the ladder, there are citizens who watch what's going on on TV around the world. How do you connect the urgency uh, of seeing atrocities? I mean, take Syria, for example, uh, right now, which looks like atrocities for many people, from seeing atrocities and getting governments to do something about it. I think it's really important to make two points in response to that profoundly important question, which is that, one, it's 
one thing to identify when atrocities are occurring, but it's another thing entirely to respond in ways that are both effective and sustainable. Part of what the president's speech does is it highlights the very proactive ways in which the Obama administration really took the lead in responding to mass atrocities in Libya. Syria is a very different circumstance. It requires a different set of responses. So part of what you need to be able to do is explain to Americans that the answer isn't always going to be to send in the military, that there are tools that we can use that are less invasive, less costly, and hopefully more effective, particularly if they're used earlier in a crisis. Now, one specific step uh, the president mentioned today was an executive order he signed that he said authorizes new sanctions against the Syrian government and Iran and those that abet them for using technologies to monitor and track and target citizens for violence. The president added that these technologies should be in place to empower citizens, not to repress them. How important do you think it is to be able to sanction the use of technology in this way? Or is it something that might be hard to enforce? Well, it's a really interesting question, and I think the answer will depend on how we implement it in practice. And technology can work in a variety of different ways, but the technology, we just had a conference a couple weeks ago where we were looking at the use of surveillance technology as a way to alert the international community to the potential for mass violence. Here, the Obama administration is saying when technology is used as tools for aiding and abetting mass violence, we're going to sanction it. So technology can cut both ways. What's significant is that the administration is saying that it wants to look at sanctioning tools as well as sanctioning individuals and holding them to account. Sarah, how does this really change anything in a truly concrete way? The rubber hits the road when the next crisis happens. But what the president's policy does is it makes a very clear statement that he wants to know when problems are emerging. He doesn't want to be kept in the dark, which is what happened with President Clinton during the genocide in Rwanda. President Obama has said, as president of the United States, I want to know if there are likely to be mass human rights abuses. And I want to be able to have our government ready to act in a variety of ways, hopefully, to prevent rather than to respond to those. And I want to use partnerships of all different kinds and a variety of tools to prevent. We'll see whether that makes a difference in the next crisis. Sarah Sewell founded the Mass Atrocity Response Operations Project, and she's a professor of public policy at Harvard. Sarah, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. In his speech today, President Obama spoke about the conflict between Sudan and South Sudan. He said the people of both nations deserve peace. What they're getting instead is closer to war. Sudan and South Sudan have been inching toward conflict since the South became independent last summer. The fighting has intensified recently over disputed oil-rich territories along the border. But today, Sudan used warplanes to bomb a market inside South Sudan. Officials in the South said that amounts to a declaration of war by the North. Journalist Hannah McNeish is near the South Sudanese city of Bentiu. She found herself in the midst of the air raid today. We were driving across a bridge that linked the state capital, Bentiu, to a place called Rub Corner today, where the southern army barracks were. And we heard gunfire in the air and a whooshing sound. And we pulled over. Uh, We lay on the ground. The gunfire kept coming. And then we saw two fighter jets bomb either side of the bridge, about 50 meters away from us. The gunfire continued. And then we heard another bomb and saw a big plume of gray smoke in the distance. 
and we drove towards that, went to see what had happened, and it seems that a bomb had been dropped on a market, completely destroying three stalls. While we were there, men were carrying out a little boy who had been charred, uh, burnt to death by the impact. He was frozen into a position and had just died instantly. The hospitals say that another person later died in Bentiu Hospital. And there are two other people who are critically wounded who they don't think will survive. And there, this afternoon, there were about 10 other people who were injured by the bombs. Now, just to be clear, Hannah, the city of Bentiu, where you are right now, it's not an area disputed by Sudan and South Sudan, is it? Definitely not. Um, This is an area that is deep within South Sudan. South Sudan claims that Sudan bombed this area less than two weeks ago, and that was the first attack on a big town deep into South Sudan since the end of of a 22-year civil war in 2005. So it was major then, and today it seems like the bombing has not stopped. Can you give us an estimate of how many miles of Bentiu is from the border between Sudan and South Sudan, where skirmishes are pretty regular right now? Um, it is a, at least two hours' drive along a, a bumpy road from the border where the two sides have been fighting. Was Sudan, do you think, targeting civilians or were they targeting military areas nearby? Uh, Sudan has already targeted this bridge once in a recent attack. And these bombs fell very close to the bridge. So I think the plan was to cut off access for southern troops, many, many southern troops who are stationed here in Bentview and are being sent up to the front line. The attack on the market, I really don't understand the reason for. It was relatively near to a southern army base, but really this was an attack on, on a civilian area. It was a packed marketplace. Hannah, is it clear to you, is it clear to the South Sudanese where you are, uh, what's coming next in this apparent escalation of fighting and tension? Well, no. I mean, the army is saying and the government is saying we do not want to be pulled back into another war. They are saying that they withdrew their troops from a contested area called Heglig uh, that Sudan uses to produce half of its oil on Sunday after occupying it for over a week. And now they are saying, look at what's happened. We withdrew and now we are still being bombed on our own territory. Sudan has refused to come back to the negotiating table with South Sudan. And they say that if Sudan keeps attacking, of course, they will have to protect themselves and they will try and push these forces back. And the rhetoric from both presidents of Sudan and South Sudan sounds more warlike than ever. Well, yes. Uh, on Friday, when South Sudan said it would pull its troops out of Hegling, before that, the war rhetoric had really mounted as well. And I think the international community breathed a sigh of relief when South Sudan said that it had withdrawn and they hoped that this would have a return to talk. Now, I think that uh, South Sudan is saying this is a serious escalation and a serious provocation. And also, people on the streets are extremely angry. There is a lot of resentment. They feel that they have bowed to international pressure to take out their troops. And so the, the mood is very tense in Bentiu. Just a couple of hours ago, there was still the sound of bomber planes up ahead. And so nobody really knows what is going to happen next. All right, Hannah, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. That was reporter Hannah McNeish in Bentiu, South Sudan. 
The French voted this weekend, and they're going to vote again in two weeks. President Nicolas Sarkozy will face his socialist rival, Francois Hollande, in a second round of presidential voting. As polls had suggested, Hollande edged out Sarkozy in yesterday's first round. The surprise was far-right candidate Marine Le Pen of the National Front. She campaigned for stricter immigration controls and got nearly one in five votes. That's a record for the front, and it's driving the two remaining contenders to their extreme. The world's Jerry Haddon reports. Normally in the U.S. presidential election cycle, once the primaries are done, candidates fight for the big fat center of the voting populace. In France this year, it's just the opposite, thanks to Marine Le Pen. Quoi qu'il puisse arriver dans les 15 jours à venir. Whatever might happen in the 15 days before the second round, she said, the battle for France has only just begun. Things will never be the same again. Le Pen was congratulating her voters last night for giving her just over 18% of the vote. It's a far-right record. And because Le Pen doesn't advance to round two, a formidable slice of the electoral pie is up for grabs. Current President Nicolas Sarkozy has been trying to appeal to the right for months. During his speech last night, Sarkozy signaled that he wouldn't let up. He insisted he understood the concerns of his people. Elle porte sur le respect de nos frontières. Among other things, it has to do with having our borders respected, he said, getting immigration under control, improving security for voters and for their families. Actually, polls suggest the French's main concern is the economy, from rising unemployment to dwindling wages and pensions. But at this stage in the game, swinging to the right looks like Sarkozy's only card, because François Hollande has the left vote virtually in the bag. Yesterday, about 12% of voters went for the communist-backed Jean-Luc Mélenchon. After coming in fourth, Mélenchon promptly urged his followers to vote Hollande. Hollande won last night's vote by a point and a half, but polls show him winning the runoff by between 8 and 12 points. That's a comfortable margin, but 15 days is a long time in politics. Perhaps that's why, in his short victory speech last night, Hollande took the time to acknowledge the far right's rise. C'est un nouveau signal. The front rise is just another sign of this flash of anger across the republic, he said, anger over the terrible leadership of President Sarkozy over the last five years. In other words, far right, join us on the left. We're discontented, just like you. Hollande wants to assure for himself at least some of those votes. Chances are he will. One exit poll in France yesterday suggested nearly half of Le Pen supporters would vote for Hollande. Le Pen herself has not told her followers who to support. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Springtime means more of us dusting off our bicycles and pedaling around. In Germany, there's a lot of people riding their bikes year-round. Some 15% in Berlin, for example, move around on two wheels. And as you might expect in a country like Germany, there are a lot of rules governing bicycle riding. But there's one rule we might take for granted that just doesn't exist in Germany, as you'll hear in this report from Miriam Widman in Berlin. If you're commuting to work every day on your bike, checking your bike's chain to make sure it's oiled and working is always a good idea. As is trying out the bell. 
In Roulade in Germany, there are lots of specific things you must do to make a bike suitable to be ridden on the street. Attaching lights is a biggie. But not just any lights. You can't use battery-powered ones because, well, your battery might die. And if you do, Philip Pohl of the German Bicycle Association says, prepare for a ticket. Police checks are routinely conducted and riders would get a warning and then be required to pay a fine if they don't have the right bike light. But there's one rule that, a bit shockingly, doesn't exist in Germany. No one has to wear a helmet, not even kids. Siegfried Neubauer is the director of the Two-Wheeler Association, which represents bike and helmet manufacturers. We think that, uh, that this law could uh, decrease um, the, the usage of bicycles by the cyclists. That's right. Even companies that sell helmets don't want a law requiring them. You wouldn't think Germans would bristle at another law. After all, this is a country where you get yelled at for jaywalking at midnight. But apparently Germans would rather stop riding their bicycles than wear a helmet. It's more or less public consent in Germany that we do not have a mandatory helmet law. That's Dr. Uli Schmucker, a trauma surgeon at the German Academy of Trauma Surgery in Munich. Schmucker says there's no question that wearing a helmet is a good idea. U.S. statistics show that 85% of riders involved in accidents escaped head injury thanks to helmets. One Canadian study showed that 88% of cyclists killed in accidents weren't wearing helmets. But Schmucker and others also point to an Australian study that shows fewer people will ride bikes if forced to wear helmets. And that, Schmucker says, is not good for society. To set a signal that riding a bicycle is dangerous has immense adverse health effects on the population level. It's completely a catastrophe if we send out a signal, do not ride your bicycle. For retiree Renata Schrott, the safety debate is interesting, but it's not the main reason she's against a helmet law. She actually wears a helmet on long rides, but not when she shops in her Berlin neighborhood. It's too inconvenient. And besides, You look pretty stupid when you take your helmet off, she says. For The World, I'm Miriam Widman in Berlin. A new documentary getting a showing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York portrays a stark choice facing women in India. The world's Alex Galifant takes a look. The film's called The World Before Her, although it's really about two worlds, one rooted in India's past, the other very much in its present. This is no place for little girls anymore. This is a place for women. First, we go behind the scenes at the Miss India pageant. Everything you say, you say it with sureness, with your enunciation, with your smile, with your confidence. It's that that makes a winner. One of the young women competing to be Miss India is called Ankita. For her, the beauty pageant isn't a retro competition. It's a shot at freedom. Because, you know, in, in our society in India, it's dominated by men. For a woman to have her stand in the society, it's very important for her to go out, earn for herself. You earn for yourself, you live up for yourself, you gain respect, huh? you absolutely, you gain respect. Of course, there's more than one way to get respect, and millions of Indian women are today achieving success in all walks of life. But the other half of this documentary is devoted to another extreme, women and girls who seem to reject almost everything about modern society. Girls as young as 15 gather to hear their teacher. 
She declares that your transformation into tigers begins here. This is a camp run by the women's wing of one of India's extremist Hindu organizations. The girls learn to march, how to use a rifle, how to, as their leaders say, defend the nation from well things like Miss India. A woman's place, they're taught, is not at school and certainly not on stage, even if paradoxically they're attending a kind of school to defend that belief. Anyway, as director Nisha Pahuja told me, these are the two worlds of the documentary. You know, you you put these girls through a process, and and they come out, you know, as beauty queens or as little warriors. Pahuja was born in India but raised in Canada. Her film uses these two stark paths, beauty queen or warrior, to represent the choices facing India as a country. You know, I think what's clear is is that the the country is sort of polarized, right, between you know whether they're going to sort of be traditional or whether they're going to be supposedly modern. I'm not so sure. There are huge contrasts, no doubt, but that reduction to the either or framework, past or future, is too simple, and it's an all too familiar way of framing modern India. By concentrating on these two extreme worlds, worlds that make for an admittedly dramatic contrast, the film doesn't spend much time with the many young Indian women who are finding a balance between the old and the new. In fact, The best parts of the documentary are precisely when the neat expectations are inverted. The biggest surprise for me was realizing that the girls in the pageant world weren't particularly modern. You know that they were actually fairly conservative. Almost all of them, Nisha Pahuja said, felt uncomfortable during the swimsuit contest, but they all knew they had to play the part in order to win the prize. In a similar way, we meet a girl in the women's extremist camp who hates the pageants, hates everything they stand for. At the same time, she wants to make her own decisions, like whether or not to get married. In a way, she and the beauty pageant contestants want exactly the same thing: the freedom to determine their own lives, the very thing that many Indian women have already claimed for themselves. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant, New York. You can watch some scenes from the film A World Before Her there at theworld.org. Two locations figure in today's GeoQuiz. One is the town of Rikuzen Takata. It's one of the many Japanese towns hit hard by last year's tsunami. The waters that devastated so much of northeastern Japan also swept a vast amount of debris out to sea. That debris got caught up in the ocean currents and has been slowly drifting across the Pacific. Some has been washing up on the shores of Middleton Island. That's the second place that figures in our quiz. Middleton is located in the Gulf of Alaska. Now, your task today: we want you to estimate the distance covered by that Trans-Pacific crossing between Rikuzen Takata and Middleton Island, Alaska. We're back with the answer later in the program. Today's news is next here on PRI.
I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, hard lessons from the British occupation of Afghanistan in the 1830s. The Duke of Wellington predicted absolutely accurately that Britain's troubles would begin when Britain's military successes ended, and he was absolutely right in pointing the finger at imbecility. That story ahead on The World. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It took a year and a half of tough negotiations and 23 drafts, but the American and Afghan governments have finally inked a tentative deal on the role of U.S. forces in the country after 2014. The agreement commits Washington to help defend Afghanistan for at least 10 years after the last American combat troops leave the country. The U.S. is also pledging not to attack any other country from Afghan soil while continuing to support development and human rights there. One other key part of Afghan life that will need support in coming years is the environment. Thirty years of nearly constant war and upheaval have taken a huge toll on the country's environment. The cost has been especially high in Kabul, where in recent years the city's air has been almost as deadly as the war. Here's the world's Laura Lynch. On a cobble side street, a driver fires up an old truck and gets ready to head out onto the city's clogged boulevards. The tangle of traffic that knots up downtown Kabul almost every day is one of the few hints of the invisible killer stalking the city. Another is the large number of pedestrians who cover their faces with masks or scarves. Shamshula is one of them, unmasking only to answer a question. He says he covers his face because of the dust and pollution to try to ward off illness. And he has real reason to worry. The Afghan government estimates air pollution is responsible for 3,000 deaths every year in Kabul. That's nearly as many as the number of civilians killed here last year as a result of the ongoing war. Vehicles are a big part of the problem. Most of the tens of thousands that choke the city's roads are old, run on dirty, leaded gasoline, and have dodgy exhaust systems. They also drive over a lot of unpaved roads, kicking up clouds of dust. And all these polluting cars are crammed into a city that's badly overcrowded. Gula Mohammed Malikyar is a senior advisor at Afghanistan's Environmental Protection Agency. He says Kabul's population of 5 million is five times too big. Kabul is built for maximum one million population. It's a very, very limited uh, city and mountainous city. During the past 30 years, people from rural area migrated to city because of security or education or other purposes. Malikyar says the city's swelling size has led to other sources of pollution. People build illegal homes, then use diesel generators to power them. Those who can't afford a generator will burn tires, plastic bags, or other garbage as fuel. The result is a nearly permanent smoky haze over the city. As recently as the 1980s, Kabul was known for its crystal-clear air and spectacular views of the snow-capped mountains that rise up around it. Malikyar is saddened by the fact they're rarely visible these days. Of course, uh, I was a child here and I raised uh, in this uh, 
situation. I, and I was involved in environmental protection since 1992. So from that time to now, I, I see that the, the, the changes, much changes. Those changes have a human cost. <coughs> Dr. Nasitar Zanakse is seeing an increasing number of patients like Noor Ahmad. Ahmad came to Dr. Zanakse's Kabul clinic after feeling ill for weeks. Ahmad says he's been coughing so much he's been unable to sleep at night. According to Afghanistan's health ministry, cases involving respiratory problems tripled between 2005 and 2011 to nearly 500,000. And a 2006 report from the United Nations Environment Programme found that even then, 60% of Kabul residents were exposed to high concentrations of dangerous particulate matter, nitrous oxide and sulfur dioxide. Dr. Zanakse says even as his list of patients grows, he doesn't see any real efforts to tackle the problem. Sometimes as a doctor, we will think, okay, uh, this is sad for us, but uh, there is no way to, to solve uh, the problem and okay, to how to control the disease. In fact, the government is making at least some effort to solve the problem. It's tried to ban older cars with damaged exhaust systems, and it's proposed emission standards for vehicles and industry. Last year, it even started closing government offices an extra day every week to try to reduce traffic. Still, the EPA's Ghulam Mohammed Malikyar says there's one critical part still missing. Of course, uh, the political will and political support is very low. Not surprising, perhaps, in a country torn apart by decades of war and facing many more immediate challenges than an enemy that's not easy to see. Still, Malikyar says it means there's not nearly enough money to tackle the problem. Recently, for example, Kabul installed a new air quality monitoring station. But Malikyar says the city would need 10 more to do the job properly. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch, Kabul. Traffic jams Kabul-style, we have a slideshow of Kabul streets filled with dirty, leaded gasoline-fueled cars. That's at theworld.org. Many critics of the current U.S.-Afghanistan policy often point to misadventures in years past by foreign troops in Afghanistan. Go back to the Soviet invasion in 1979 or go further back to the 1830s. Britain was trying to protect its sizable investments in India, and occupying Afghanistan was one way of doing it. Uh, Diana Preston, that didn't work out very well, did it? No, it didn't. It started off reasonably well. You know, the British, as you were just saying, decided on regime change in Afghanistan because they were, they were worried that the Russians were going to come storming in through Afghanistan into British India. So they wanted to make sure that they had a ruler on the throne in Kabul who suited them. So what happened was they went marching in, deposed the existing very capable ruler, put their own candidate on the throne, and then very soon after that it all started to fall apart. So what had gone very easily in the first instance then um, became a very difficult and hazardous situation. Now, Diana Preston, you've just written a book, The Dark Defile, Britain's Catastrophic Invasion of Afghanistan, 1839 to 1842. We're talking about the first Anglo-Afghan war. Is that what this war was all about then? Yes, it was really to do with Britain wanting to protect her interests in imperial India. You know, India at the time, her most important colonial possession. Now, as far as what the British did in this war in Afghanistan, none other than the great British general, the Duke of Wellington, said that, quote, there must have either been the grossest treachery or the most inconceivable imbecility and very likely a mixture of both. 
What happened to get this kind of comment from the Duke of Wellington? Yes, I mean, the Duke of Wellington predicted absolutely accurately that Britain's troubles would begin uh, when Britain's military successes ended. And he was absolutely right in pointing the finger at uh, imbecility. The military leaders and the political leaders really didn't understand the situation that they had got themselves into. I was quite interested during the research to come across some comments by the leading British diplomat in Kabul who told off one of his colleagues for being very pessimistic about the British position. This colleague was starting to say the British are in a very, very difficult, dangerous place. You know, we ought to be withdrawing. And he wrote to this official saying, no, no, um, I must encourage you to look at things with more what he called couleur de rose, you know, looking at things through rose-tinted spectacles. Mm. There was almost what I, I've called in the book... Uh, taken from a comment by a recent British ambassador to Kabul, something of a conspiracy of optimism. The stage was reached in Kabul where there were so many vested interests, you know, the people who'd supported the policy in the interim, that they were very reluctant to tell the home British government that it was all going wrong. Now, the British military finally decided to get out of Afghanistan in 1842, but uh, Diana, what on earth possessed them to agree to commence a retreat through savage mountain terrain in the middle of winter without adequate supplies of food and fuel? As you say, uh, the British chose a very poor time to retreat with winter coming on, really, really bitter winter, sub-zero temperatures. But you have to look at what had happened in the preceding few weeks. The senior British uh, diplomat in Kabul who had been negotiating with the Afghan chieftains had been murdered and his body hacked up and displayed in the bazaar. The British themselves were pinned down in very indefensible barracks um, outside the main city of Kabul. I think they really regarded withdrawal as one of the very few options left open to them. And they put their faith in the promises they were given by the Afghan chiefs that they would be given protection. Uh, The chief said, look, so long as you withdraw out of our country and you go back through the passes and you withdraw from the other cities in Afghanistan that you've garrisoned, we will give you safe passage. That didn't happen. Right. 15,000 plus uh, died on that passage and only one survived the kind of getting across the other end of the the passes. Absolutely. There was only one British survivor uh, who actually made it through to the fortress at Jalalabad, which is where they were aiming for. In the days that followed, um, some Indian soldiers managed to reach there. And also during the retreat, quite a number of Britons had been taken hostage. So they were later going to um, mostly survive. But of course, during the retreat through the passes, you have this tremendous carnage, particularly amongst the Indian troops. There were 4,500 British troops withdrawing, of whom about 80% were Indian troops. Um, Those Indian troops were not taken hostage. They were mostly just, just cut down or left to die. And there were also 12,000 camp followers, you know, men, women and children Mm. who were just really left to perish in the snow or or, or to be hacked to pieces. The carnage was terrible. And when eventually, you know, British troops went back through the passes to Kabul, they describe how their gun carriages just rolled over mountains of uh, of bones and the remains of corpses. Mm. Diana Preston, uh, I mean, the mega picture here is we're talking about Britain coming into Afghanistan to try and invest power in a pro-British king, fighting and failing to do that and then retreating and losing. I mean, the comparisons with the present day are not fully there yet, but starting to look similar for the U.S. You don't dig deep into those parallels in the dark defile, though. Why not? 
What I wanted to do was to leave it for the reader to draw their own deductions. I think there are some very clear messages which come through about the unwisdom of not having a clear exit strategy, for example. You know, the British went into Afghanistan with you know, some idea of replacing one ruler with another, and they had never really thought beyond that. Uh, they didn't know what was going to happen next. I think there are also messages about understanding better the culture and the attitudes of the people in whose country you're intervening, and also in necessarily assuming that the institutions, the democratic structures, say that we all value in the West, that those will necessarily be understood and immediately welcomed by everyone. And it's it's worth saying, and if you talk to Afghanis, they will see foreign interference in their country, whatever the motives and however well-intentioned it has been, as really just one long continuum. They see a clear relationship between what's happening today and what happened in 1838. Diana Preston, the book is The Dark Defile, Britain's Catastrophic Invasion of Afghanistan, 1839 to 1842. Thank you very much, Diana. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. A soccer ball is in the headlines today, not a fancy World Cup soccer ball or even one kicked by a Brazilian superstar. This ball was a tiny fraction of the tons of debris washed out to sea by last year's tsunami in Japan. And it just recently washed up on Middleton Island in the Gulf of Alaska. David Baxter came across it while beachcombing on the island. And David, can you tell us about that moment when you saw this ball? Oh, when I first saw it, I was actually walking the beach with a co-worker and he picked it up out of the driftwood and then handed it to me because there's some handwriting in Japanese characters, uh, definitely from a person, not stamped from a factory. He knows I have a Japanese wife, and he asked me, does that look Japanese? I said, well, yeah, it sure does, and uh, I better take this home to Yumi to see if some of these characters have a person's name on it, and maybe we can get it back to him." Right, so that obviously made you want to investigate further. How did you start? Well, I brought it home to Yumi, and she was able to quickly ascertain it was a gift from some third graders to a student, Misaki Murakami. She also noticed the name of the school and Googled it and found out that it was, in fact, in the tsunami zone. Now, David, your wife, Yumi Baxter, uh, did a lot of the uh, kind of gumshoe work finding the uh, owner of this, Misaki Murakami. Can I speak to Yumi? Oh, yes. I'll hand you right over. Hello. Hello, Yumi. Tell me about how you went about finding the owner of this ball. It was kind of hard because um, I just uh, went to Internet. We found his name, but we don't know for sure that's him, but it's the same Chinese character and everything, just like on the ball. And uh, it's hard for me to reach him because there's no other way to find out. And then I guess some media was trying to find a person in Japan, and then uh, finally... um, he called here. And you spoke with him? Yes. He was amazed <laughs> that Bo made it that far. Well, a Japanese reporter interviewed him. It sounds like it was worth it. Here's what he had to say. I would have never imagined that my soccer ball could have traveled thousands of miles and made it all the way to Alaska. I was shocked since I haven't recovered a single item from my house since the tsunami. Until now. So I'm really happy about this. So that's great news, Yumi. Is there any plan to hand deliver the soccer ball to Misaki Murakami? Or? I think we'll probably send it to him. Our intention wasn't get this big or anything. We just simply we are worried about the person who owned the ball because we didn't know for sure he's alive enough, one, 
we just wanted to return the ball. I think that's that's the reason came to us. I think mm. <laughs> it's a great story. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's just so much coincidence to happen this way. David and Yumi Baxter speaking with us from Kesilov, Alaska. Have a good trip to Japan when and if you go. Okay, thank you very much. By the way, that soccer ball floated all the way from the northeast coast of Japan to the Gulf of Alaska. That's somewhere between 3,000 and 3,500 miles across the Pacific. So anywhere in that range is good for the answer to our GeoQuiz today. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Flamenco is music and dance, but most of all, it's a feeling. Flamenco is more pain than, than happiness, you know. That pronouncement comes from Paco de Lucia, a man who many regard as the top flamenco guitarist in the world. I recently caught up with Paco de Lucia in Boston, one of the stops on his current month-long North American tour. I want to ask you about the origins of flamenco. Um, a lot of people say it comes from India and the Hindu, Hindustani music. Have you ever been to India? No, I've been only once or two in, on the airport, but i never been. I won't, I'm wishing to go there. But uh, flamenco is the music of Andalusia. Andalusia, we have been colonized for a lot of cultures, different cultures. We had uh, the Arabs for eight, eight, 800 years, we have uh, Sephardita Jews that they live, they, they, they let there a lot of music. Arabs, Sephardit. Uh, I'm from the Persian people, you know, the Spanish people Caribbean. from Persia, ancient Persia, so Iran. Yeah. Uh, this is a Spanish cadence. Uh, I don't hear that cadence in any other music except uh, in the uh, ancient uh, Persian music. So you've not been to India, but you are very well-traveled. Um, and I understand you kind of split your time now between Mexico and Mallorca? Yeah, I spend my time all over the world. You know, I am traveling from 12 years old that I came to this country, uh, playing with a, a ballet of Jose Greco. Jose Greco was a very well-known uh, dancer at that time. And I came with my, uh, my brother, Pepe. He was a singer. He's a singer. And uh, I played the guitar. I was a kid. And we spent uh, one year touring in a bus all over the United States. And we came, you know, from that time till now, I didn't stop. I am tired. Many years, many years, non-stop. But it's the only way I have to communicate with the, the people. You know, I, I play music, and with the music you can go any, anywhere all around the world and you can tell them how you are, how you feel, where you come from with the music. You don't need words.
So when you first started playing, you were 11 years old. Uh, it was 1959. Spain was still ruled by Franco, and it was a pretty agricultural country. Um, you know, I know there are always a lot of people who say the more things change, the more they stay the same. But how does it strike you? Is, is, is Spain a lot different today? I mean, for somebody who plays a guitar and sits behind the guitar all the time, what changes do you see? No, when you're, when you're a kid, you, you have no conscience of the, the politics. I was a very poor guy who my aspiration in life was to survive. And, um, and I think I have the, the idea that the people who suffer uh, has more creativity than the people who has everything, you know? De Lucia, you, you've really spent your, your life at the forefront of flamenco, and you've been consistently paving new innovations in the music. And I'm just wondering, at the age of 64, is there ever a time where you say, enough is enough, I just want to kind of stop creating? No, no, no. I have the sensation that I should like to have another life in a way, you know, because I should like to learn, for example, harmonies and music. If I if I should have now twenty years old, I would come to Boston to Berkeley to learn harmonies, you know. And uh, you feel you don't understand harmony well enough. I don't understand harmony. I don't read music. I don't know solfeo. I don't know I, uh, everything I did. I did it through my intuition. All through the interview, you've been moving your fingers, lightning speed. Just what, what does that do for you before a concert? Get warm, like a, a football player. You know, the, the finger has to be warm to, to play, and I have to play in less than an hour. So I'm not, I'm not very upset. I shouldn't play now making an interview, but I have not the time to wait. <laughs> Paco de Lucia, a real honor. Thank you very much for speaking with Thank me. You Thank you, man. You can see Paco's restless fingers as he warmed up for his concert during our interview. We have the video at theworld.org.
That's our program today. Our online team is led by Stephen Davey with Michael Rass and Manya Gupta. In London are Rob Hugh Jones, Ian Rosser, and Rahul Joglaker. The world's engineers are Louis Cronin, Robin Moore, Tina Toby, and Mike Wilkins. The executive producer of The World is Andrew Sussman. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Please join us again tomorrow. is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, the Freeman Foundation, and the PRI Program Fund, including the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.